Anyway, we're glad that you're here today. Um, well, I want to talk about forgiveness and abuse. And if you're a part of this church or you've heard me speak before, you know that I'm sort of like a tour guide uh, that takes people on a boat and we generally go snorkeling in very shallow water and we get look at interesting things and it's fun and so on uh, and, it's, and it's thoughtful and so on. But today I want to let you know from the very front end, we're not going to do any snorkeling. We're actually going scuba diving. We're going pretty deep into some things and uh, because we're talking about forgiveness and abuse, um, it, it really is a deep dive into things that are central to our Christian faith. And this is important uh, for a few reasons, because one, it's my job to equip you for life. It's my job to do my best to reflect what I see Jesus doing in the world, but it's my job to equip you so that when you leave here, you have something to hold on to, not just some fun feelings that you may get from worship, because worship is great here. Junior does a great job with our team. We do a great job, but we're looking for you to have something that's deeper. And also, uh, we've been doing this wonderful series on forgive and forgiveness. And it, I think up to this point in the series, like last week we talked about cancel culture, the week before we talked about a few other things. But like if you're offended or someone hurts you, yes, we're called to forgive. Like, but what if the, what if, what if the offense against you is deep, like, and it's real, and it's not just someone called you a name or didn't call you back or ghosted you? What if there's something that's so real? You need to take a look at evil in the face, and you need to see if Jesus can bring answers to that. And that's why this is a deep dive, okay? Um, so let's jump in. Um, like I said, today is our our topic is forgiveness and abuse. And uh, perhaps you've heard of a person, I'm going to mention this person, I want to tell you a story. And this person is someone by the name of Rachel Den Hollander. Perhaps you know this name because a few years back she was in the news. She is a former gymnast uh, who was sexually assaulted multiple times by USA gymnastics physician Larry Nasser. And Rachel Denhollander, in 2018, she was able to break through some of the resistance and the wall of denial, and she became the very first person to accuse Larry Nasser of abuse. And this led to hundreds of other women coming forward, telling their own stories of abuse with Nasser and their own stories of assault that they experienced at his hands. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Den Hollander is a Christian. And what's interesting is, in her work as an advocate for those who have been abused or assaulted, she has seen that churches routinely mishandle certain kinds of abuse and sexual assault allegations. And many victims are counseled or persuaded to forgive and forget. And by doing so, the abuse alleged by the victims ends up interfering or being negative towards criminal investigations. Are we following? Does this make sense? And as an advocate, she's experienced far too many stories where people are told to forgive and forget. It's the Christian thing to do. Or she's been approached by women who are saying that their husbands are actively abusing their children. And at the bottom of all of this, what she found was that the church's teaching on things and concepts like unity and forgiveness and grace 
resulted in something unthinkable. It resulted in abusers being forgiven while victims were silenced and being characterized as just bitter people that couldn't let go of the past. Now, according to Rachel's experience, this kind of behavior led victims and advocates to reject Christianity. And some people went in so far as to reject the whole idea of the atonement of Jesus. Now, uh, these critics of Christianity, these critics of the cross, the critics of atonement in general, that didn't sit well with Rachel. I recently had the opportunity to read Rachel's memoir, um, and it's called What is a Girl Worth? And I strongly recommend it. Um, It really gave me a perspective that I didn't have before on the matter. And um, there's actually some chapters we're going to recommend to our board to read, um, which they always read what I give them. Right, guys? Uh, They don't. You do. I'm just kidding. Uh, Anyway, they read it. Uh, Anyway, it's really good. It'll give us some, it'll give you some, it'll be helpful for you. Anyway, so in her her memoir, uh, she found herself wrestling with God after she really became aware of what had been done to her by Nasser. And she said that she wanted to forgive In the book, she wanted to forgive, but she didn't want this forgiveness to become an excuse uh, to act as this terrible thing never happened to her. And she went on to say that certain prominent Christian teachers, people that we would know, names that we had heard of, they were implying that she hadn't really forgiven, that she hadn't really trusted in God until she could be thankful for the evil that had been done to her. Is that really what forgiveness means? You have somebody telling you you got to be thankful. Oh, I'm so glad this happened to me. I'm thankful to God for it. She didn't think so. She didn't think that was right, but she had heard it so many times. This left her alone in her own grief. And she admitted that mentally, she played with the idea, what if I just turn my back on God? What if I stop being a Christian? Like, what if I just reject Christianity? Then I don't have to feel with the guilt that comes with my inability to forgive Nasser and what he did. What if I could just, I'll just get that out of the way and I can just pursue justice. I can produce, I can just pursue, uh, liberate myself from the guilt that I feel. The problem was, is even when she toyed with that, no matter where she looked, where she looked in the scriptures or where she looked in life as she looked around the world and then she watched people, um, she saw, saw something strange. She saw that her faith actually offered more real answers than if she had chosen to leave it behind. So what did she do? Did she forgive? More on Rachel later. (laughs) Now Paul the Apostle, who wrote most of the New Testament, he has an interesting perspective on the cross that can be applied to our pain, our suffering, and the things that we've experienced that are awful. And as Grace prayed earlier, some of us, uh, there's some people right now that are experiencing this right now in our city. And there's some of us who are watching and looking in on that. And in his letter to the Romans, Paul is encouraging his readers to take on God's view of humanity and to understand what Jesus did on the cross. Now I'm going to read a little bit. I'm going to read what Paul wrote that's been translated into English. And then I'm going to read the message version. Now, the message version is kind of like a paraphrased version 
that, it, it, that helps you see it from a, from a different perspective. So read along with me on the screen to yourselves. Read along to yourselves as I read this. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21, we re, we, it says this. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Here's the message version by Eugene Peterson. These are the same verses. He takes the same concept. But in our time, something new has been added. What Moses and the prophets witnessed all those years has happened. The God setting things right that we read about has become Jesus setting things right for us. And not only for us, but for everyone who believes in him. For there's no difference between us and them in this. Since we've compiled this long and sorry record of sins, both us and them, and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he puts us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be. And he did it by means of Jesus Christ. God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to clear that world of sin. Having faith in him sets us in the clear. God decided on this course of action in full view of the public to set the world in the clear with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus, finally taking care of the sins he had so patiently endured. This is not only clear, but it's now. This is current history. God sets things right. He also makes it possible for us to live in his rightness. In these verses, we see that Jesus sacrificed himself so that justice and could address the issue of sin and also because that forgiveness is available to everybody. The cross of Jesus is both forgiveness and justice. Jesus is the God, the self-giving God who showed love, who brought true justice and forgiveness into the world. And he makes it available to you and to me. And he also makes it available to people that have done terrible things. Now let me show you um, how this works. But before I do, I want you to hear this. The cross of Jesus Christ. Here's what this means for you. The cross of Jesus Christ has the ability to bring hope and healing from abuse. It has the power to bring hope and healing from oppression. It has power to bring hope and healing from the evil that so is everywhere in our world. Let me show you how this works. Back to Rachel. Now in 2018, Rachel and her husband Jacob 
uh, were married, and they had a few kids at this point. And uh, Jacob was a PhD student at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and together they presented a paper at a scholarship forum uh, that was very interesting, and it was called Justice, the Foundation, a Christian Approach to Abuse. And the paper is interesting because it confronted an evangelicals and it confronted their misunderstanding of forgiveness, which had led to communities to side with abusers and ended up shielding them from the consequences of their atrocious actions. And so to remedy this bad theology, Rachel and Jacob pointed to the traditional uh, uh, classic doctrine of the cross and substitutionary atonement and how the cross and what Jesus did by taking on the penalty of sin was the way to look at this. And they were able to draw on several principles that uh, help us to understand what this means when we're faced with evil or when we're faced with abuse. And here are the principles she shared in that paper. It directly applies to what we just read by the Apostle Paul. Here's what we read. Or here's what she said. First, a victim's sense of injustice and desire for vindication are upheld at the cross because injustice and unrighteousness are real and God hates them. All right? And Jesus bore the divine wrath against sin on the cross. His actions on the cross vindicated Rachel because Jesus hated what had been done to her and what had been done to so many others. To put it another way, there's a quote from Fleming Rutledge. It makes many people queasy nowadays to talk about the wrath of God but there can be no turning away from this prominent biblical theme. Oppressed peoples around the world have been empowered by the scriptural picture of a God who is angered by injustice and unrighteousness. You see, it's at the cross that we see that sin and evil they're not trivial to God. The cross shows us God's commitment to justice. And the Den Hollanders, when they wrote this paper, their argument means that if God's committed to justice, you and I should be committed to justice. That, it, that you should pursue justice just as I should pursue justice here on earth. If you are the victim of abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, if you are the victim of oppression or of evil, or if you know someone who's experienced abuse or you've experienced evil at the hands of another, did you know that God hates that? God hates what was done to you. And you are vindicated because God sees it as an injustice against you. This means that all of us should pursue justice for the oppressed. Why? Because the scriptures care about justice. Because God cares about justice. And everything we see in the cross points to justice. The second thing that the Den Hollanders wrote in their paper, that the cross shows that God is committed to both justice and forgiveness. There's no need to pit one against the other 
Because when Jesus died on the cross, it means that a single stroke justice was done against sin and the door to forgiveness was open. I'm going to read you a quote from the Den Hollander paper. It says this, A banker cannot be said to have forgiven a loan if a third party pays a loan on behalf of another. However, when the banker himself pays the loan on behalf of another, this is both satisfaction of justice and forgiveness in a single stroke. At the cross, the reality of evil and need for justice is upheld. Either divine punishment will be meted out on the individual who has done the wrong or is taken up by God upon himself. You see, in the scriptures and at the cross, we see that God takes oppression very seriously. But we also see that he pays the debt connected to that oppression, the debt that was committed by other people. He personally chose to take on the sin, the abuse, the bad choices that we have made and the choices that others have been made, that have been made by others. The cross shows us that both evil people and decent people can be forgiven. Look, here's the point. There is no sin too small and there is no sin too big that God cannot forgive. And I don't know what you bring into this room today, but I do know there's nothing that you have done that cannot be forgiven by God if you want to be forgiven, that cannot be made right because he paid the price for you. The cross shows us that you can be forgiving and there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus if that's what you want. Now, some in our culture have a real hard time with this. Some might even call it scandalous. This is the scandal of the gospel because this is why the world finds it difficult to believe that no matter what you've done or what you're doing or what you will do, whether it was stealing a candy bar or you've done something far, far worse, the gospel says that God can forgive you. And it doesn't mean that there won't be consequences to your actions. The actions that you've committed against others, you could have to pay the price for what you have done here on earth. But that it does mean that anybody who wants it can be restored to God their Father. Now that's scandalous. And the point that Rachel and Jacob were trying to make is that because God himself paid the debt himself, he has the authority and he has the ability to forgive while still upholding his value for justice uh, for the oppressed. The third thing the Den Hollanders brought up, this is fascinating, the example of God at the cross inverts power dynamics at play in oppression and abuse. Now that's a bunch of uh, English words written by people, but let me explain what that means. Did you know that every, every crime committed on a victim who survives, particularly in sexual assault, it causes more severe and more long-lasting harmful effects than any other crime? Did you know that? And research shows that sexual abuse victims, when compared against those who are non-sexual abuse victims, the statistics find that three times people become more likely to suffer from depression, six times more likely to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, 
13 times more likely to abuse alcohol, 26 times more likely to abuse some kind of illicit drug, and then four times more likely to contemplate suicide. Four times. Four times. Well, why does this happen? Why is it so much worse for this particular kind of abuse? Well, you see, abuse, specifically this kind of abuse, it topples the necessary concepts that people need to function for everyday life. In cases of sexual abuse, abusers frequently will use things like grooming techniques, or they'll, use, uh, they'll give nice gifts, or they'll be very complimentary in their language, or they'll just provide innocent touch to a person, or display a kindness uh, to a condition the victim and prepare them for abuse. And more often than not, perpetrators are individuals who are perceived as safe and trusted by the community, or even believed to be sacrificially caring for people like the victim. So what happens? So if that's how they're perceived, when the abuse actually happens, concepts like trust and safety and security and love and compassion and care, it all gets twisted up by the perpetrator and these things become distorted and unsafe to the victim. Okay, are you following? Like they don't know what's right or wrong or up or down. It confuses them in their mind. And then everything becomes unsafe because everything could be a tool to get harmed again. And what do you want to do when you've been a victim of something? You want to protect yourself. But if the things that are normal become tools to hurt you, what do you do? How do you deal with it? And a victim's framework for healthy relationships becomes shattered by relational tactics used by the abuser. And what we see, what we see in the cross, is that the cross stands in stark opposition to behaviors like this, to the behaviors caused by abusers. And at the cross, the Son of God sets aside his divinity and becomes a human being. The strong becomes weak. At the cross, God asks for others to join him in this, to overcome evil, to uphold justice, to free the enslaved, and to restore creation. And at the cross, God himself perfectly identified with the victim because he himself was willing to be subjected to injustice. So the cross, when we hold it up, becomes the ultimate repudiation of the idea that power is to be wielded at the benefit of those who possess it. Now, according to Rachel, the cross was the thing that began to show her that she could experience healing from the misuse of power and the abuse of Nasser. And she saw a glimpse and she got a framework and a foundation to begin to properly underline and understand and redefine concepts of community and boundaries and when to trust and not when to trust or when, you should, when, things, when we need to speak out when things aren't operating rightly. Victims don't have to live in constant fear and anxiety. 
They could learn to trust again and begin a new life. And they could begin to undo the misunderstanding that was caused to them by their abusers. They could begin to heal. And isn't that what we all want? We want to be healed one way or another. Lastly, the Den Hollanders said that the cross shows the victim his or her own need for forgiveness. And that makes it easier to extend it to others. You see, for Rachel, the cross was not just a sign that God cared about injustice done to her. The cross also helped her to see her own humanity and stay humble in the process. The very nature of the cross applied to her own sin helped her from viewing criminals and abusers as the other. And this humbling of herself, it helped her not to go beyond her desire for true justice, and it didn't veer off into some sort of vengefulness or desire to see her perpetrator's permanent destruction. Also, she knew that the cross, not her grudges, not her desire for her revenge. Have you ever played out a revenge fantasy? And, they, and the person is like, oh, I'm so upset and sad when you, at the end of your, whatever you do to them in your revenge. I don't know, none of you. Oh, I'm just maybe just preaching myself this morning. But, um, you know, our grudges, our vengefulness, our desire for revenge, it doesn't actually work. And Rachel understood this. Rachel understood that the cross was the best chance that Larry Nasser had to see his own sin, to see his own self-deception, and to change that. But only if he was confronted with his consequences, which he was. And here's why this is key. Because when an abuser is confronted by a human using human standards... The abuser, even if there are consequences connected to it, may not see his or her responsibility in the situation because they might say, well, I'm only human, you're only human, and you've made mistakes too, and you don't know the contextual situation or the neighborhood or what I had to deal with. You're lucky that this and that. There can be a myriad of excuses and problems or reasons why the person can't take responsibility for their own sin that can come into that conversation. Here's the difference. When an abuser is confronted by the cross of Jesus, when the abuser is confronted by the reality of a perfect Jesus who calls out the abuser's injustice, what you did was wrong. When, an, when Jesus calls it out and at the same time takes on the sin, the sin penalty caused by the abuser and still maintains an open door to relationship and forgiveness if the abuser desires it. Well, that just hits different, doesn't it? Why? Because perfect love and justice are an abuser's best chance to change. It's not going to be you. It's not going to be me. It's, it's not going to be revenge. So did Rachel forgive? 
during the trial of Larry Nassar, after he was convicted in the courtroom years later, she put her understanding of the cross to work. And during the victim impact portion of the sentencing and the trial, she was invited to speak. She took the stand and she spoke. And here's what she said. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know that the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it is better for a millstone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and its eternal terror is poured out on them like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing way to get, so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. You see, the past is the past, and it cannot be undone. And in the past, we also see that Jesus took action on the cross. The cross grounds us because, because it has all the potential in the world to change what's happened to a victim. It can replace pain with joy and peace and hope and some sort of meaning. And that's how we do forgiveness when it's truly evil. I pray, she wrote, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that someday you might experience true repentance and forgiveness from, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. At the cross, God acts for the weak, the oppressed, the abused. He, oppressed, he, he, he works for them to overcome evil, to overcome injustice, to free the enslaved. At the cross, a God identifies with the victims of manipulation and power plays. And the cross is the greatest demonstration of that we will ever see, ever, in our lifetime. I, I brought this to you today because, uh, because there is really evil in the world. And... Um, 
And I think Rachel's example is an amazing example of how to think in a very Christian way about forgiveness when the evil is actually real. It's not superficial, like someone offended you on Twitter. What do you do when the evil is actually real against you? And I hope this has provided a framework for you. But why don't we do some ministry? Can we all stand, please?